maybe now in the, in the present or in the past, that have made your life miserable. Anybody here not have people in their life ever, now or ever, that have made their life miserable? Raise your hand. All right, we have a universal. This is one of those few times where every single person in a room would raise their hand. Maybe it's a relative or a sibling. You know, maybe you get along with your siblings growing up. Maybe you don't or didn't. Maybe you didn't then, but you do now, and thank God for that. Maybe it's a, a relative of another kind. Maybe you have an uncle who just really messes with you and rubs you the wrong way. Maybe it's a, a co-worker or even a boss. Raise your hand if it's your boss. They're not here. We won't say. You're not on tape, so your hands don't get shown. I'm the only one that they can see, so um, I won't say anything. Gwen, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I didn't even see if your hand went up. I'm just messing with you. Maybe it's a, a former spouse. Maybe you're uh, you know, a person who's going through or has gone through a, a divorce and you know, there's, there's some animosity there and they just really made your life really awful or someone you dated or, or parents or maybe even grown children. Maybe you have a strife-filled relationship with your grown children or as a grown child, your parents, and there's issues there that you know, they, just, they, they just aren't resolved and they're not getting along. Maybe it's just a terrible neighbor. Raise your hand if you have ever had or have a terrible neighbor. Man, if you could just get them to move, right? Like... Like you, like, you don't want their house to burn down, but, like, you wouldn't be all that terribly mad if it's right. Like, you just wish they would just somehow move, or maybe they at least get a job transfer somewhere else. Now, here's one. You ever witness, um, you know, hear about one of these people going down in life and kind of felt like you liked it just a little bit, right? The people that make you miserable. I'm not saying that we're all vindictive, horrible people, but when there's people in life that we just severely dislike, they've made our life a living hell, and then inevitably something happens to them, they're kind of brought down to their knees a little bit, there's that part of you, if you're honest with yourself, that just really enjoys that a little bit inside. Right? Maybe you're on Facebook and it's that high school bully that you, you now are like, you know, they just, oh, they just lost this person, so-and-so broke up with them, and you're like, serves them right, right, you know? You're just so excited that their life is not great. And if it was great or even better than yours, you'd have some resentment there because, you know, they had their turn of greatness. Now it's mine. We have these things that we like to do with people that make us miserable, whether they are on a large scale or a small scale. Now, how about this? Maybe you say, I am not a vindictive person. I don't have anybody in my personal life, both now or in the past, that I would wish ill upon. Um, Anybody here would get excited um, if the current president was impeached and actually removed, or maybe even the former president, right? I'm not trying to go one way or another, right? If you, maybe you're not excited about the current, but maybe you'd be excited if the former had actually been removed, right? So let's take it beyond just the personal realm, and I go to politics just because it stings, right? But maybe we have people that we know of, they're celebrities or politicians or leaders of any kind, and we go, man, I just, if, some, if they got hit by a bus, I wouldn't be all that mad about it. Today we're going to look at our continued messenger series at the set of Old Testament minor prophets. And if you recall, they're not minor because they're less important. They're minor because their books are small. Right? So like an Amos is no less significant or important than an Isaiah. He just wrote this much. And Isaiah wrote more than we could cover in like a year of sermon series. Right? So it's all about the size. And today we're going to look at the book of Obadiah. There's a couple things about Obadiah that are helpful to know. Um, and the first thing that you need to know is that we know nothing about Obadiah. 
We have no idea who Obadiah is. We know less about Obadiah than we knew about Hosea. Right? Obadiah just was a guy who was a prophet. Um, it was a really common biblical name. It would be like if 5,000 years from now they dug up texts and it was written by Johnny. How does that help us? How many Johnnies are there in the world? Right? Or if you want to be technical, like most common name in the world, Muhammad. You know? We don't know who he was. He was just Obadiah. There's a couple Obadiahs in scripture, and we have very, really no evidence whatsoever to link to any one of them. So we, we just honestly, genuinely, you know, scholars don't even really bother submitting a whole lot of guesswork about which Obadiah it might be, because we, we know so little about this guy that we really only know Obadiah was a prophet. This one. Right? We do, however, know uh, two things really, really, really well. Um, and the first is the time frame of the writing, and the second is the audience of the writing. So the time frame, he writes a, a condemnation of, of a kingdom, and we'll look at in a second, but the time frame places him at the end of the Babylonian exile of the southern kingdom. And that puts us around the area of 586 B.C. Right? So in the 700s, northern kingdom, and now the, the southern kingdom has fallen too. Northern goes to Babylon in about 720s, and now the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem is, is conquered by Babylon and is taken completely and desolated. Right? The temple is destroyed. The people are displaced. It's the worst fate that has befallen it. If one kingdom falls, that's one thing, but the, the second of the two is kind of the ultimate final, the, the devastation of God's people, Israel, has just occurred shortly before Obadiah is writing. Now, what's really strange and unique, really the most unique part of the book, is the audience that Obadiah is writing to. Obadiah is not writing to God's people. It might be the only book in Scripture that really isn't intended for God's people. This book is not written to the Israelites whatsoever. Now, would they have seen it? Would they glean from it? Are they going to learn from it as, as we will? Sure, but it wasn't written to them as an audience. Instead, the, the book of Obadiah is written to the kingdom of Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom. It's also, fun fact, the shortest book in the Old Testament. It has only one chapter, 21 Verses. And so we get to do a unique thing today that we really never get to do. We get to have a sermon where we read an entire book of the Bible out loud. Uh, so I want to invite us to stand and read this strange book, and then we'll dig in and see what we might glean from it and what God is trying to say. You can follow along. Obadiah, verse 1 through 24, or through 21, sorry. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. 
All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. Those who have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you, and you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau? And you, mighty men, shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors on the day of distress. In case you're wondering, this is not a love letter. <clears throat> For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. They shall drink and swallow shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. The house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau double. They shall burn them and consume them, and there will be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Nijab shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of the Ephraim and the land of the Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephathah, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, and shall possess the cities of the Nijab. Saviors shall go to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Word of the Lord. Have a seat. <clears throat> Congratulations. You'll never read a whole book in a sermon ever again. If you do, it'll take way too long, and the sermon will be an hour and a half. Um, there's a lot of judgment language happening here that we need to understand. So the, the book of Obadiah is a, a just a singular kind of letter, a pronouncement of complete and utter judgment over the kingdom of Edom. And, and the question, really the first question is, well, why? The kingdom of Edom, if you look at Jerusalem and you cross over the Dead Sea on the other side and you start to head into the mountains <clears throat> and the caves, that's where Edom was. It was this kind of mountain-dwelling, the hill country, so to say, and they would live almost in caves. They could retreat if there was an attack into these cave systems and they would be safe there. And they've kind of existed there for a long time, but on the other side of the sea. Right? And so who is this... Who is this nation, this kingdom of Edom, and why is God so unbelievably angry with them? To understand that, we have to go back to one of the ultimate sibling rivalries of Scripture. If we look at the Israelites' history, what we see is that Abraham is eventually called in the book of Genesis right, by God, and his promise is made that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars, that God's people will derive from a single ancestor, the man Abraham. And God keeps that promise, and after many, many years in their old age, gives Abraham a son, and his name is Isaac. And Isaac eventually will have a child 
two children, and their names are going to be Jacob and Esau. They are twins. Esau is born first. Jacob is born second. Esau is a man's man, burly man. Right? Esau is like Bear Grylls with better abs and more hair. Right? Jacob is a dainty little mother's boy. Right? If Esau is out wrestling bears with his bare hands, Jacob is home watching reruns of Days of Our Lives with his mom, probably cuddling in his 40s. It's not weird, guys. It's a little weird. Yeah. But that's what we see. There's this kind of the brothers are, are, are set up to be very different from the get go. And because Esau was born first, even though just by a couple minutes, Esau is the firstborn. And we know that the firstborn has a lot better of a lot in life than the otherborns. The firstborn is the one who gets the double portion. So if you have two children, the inheritance gets split in three. The, the, the older brother gets the first two, and then the old younger brother gets just a third. So by default, being the older entitles you to twice as much as any other sibling that comes after. The other thing it entitles you to is the birthright. In essence, one of the things that you would do is carry forth the family name. Things would go through you. So when we look at genealogies, they generally go through firstborn as, as a name carries through the firstborn son in ancient Israel. So Esau is supposed to be that. But what we struggle to see is there are prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that seem to suggest that some other things are going to happen. For instance, Genesis 25 tells us that God prophesied before they were born in the womb that the older would serve the younger. So Esau would serve Jacob. That's not how it's supposed to go. And so even though Jacob came later, there's some things that happened that put him in a better position. Some are Esau's own stupidity. So what happens is Esau comes in from the hunts, starved, hungry, and Jacob is cooking. Uh, presumably he's you know, on Epicurious looking up the recipes or watching Martha Stewart and, and cooking dinner and he's making a really delicious stew and Esau comes in and he's starving and he says, Jacob, give me some of your stew. And Jacob says, I'll give it to you in exchange for your inheritance, which is a pretty steep price. Right? Could you imagine like you come home and your siblings there making, you know, pizza rolls and you really want some pizza rolls and you say, I'll give you the pizza rolls. But when our, when our parents eat it, like I get everything and you get nothing. There's no pizza roll in the world that's that good, right? <laughs> like, like nothing. But but Esau says, okay, great. Like, what use is that money to me if I starve? So give me the give me the food. And he, he essentially gives away his inheritance. Right? Much later, when Isaac in his old age has gone blind, Jacob and his mom devise a plan to also get the blessing. Firstborn son is supposed to get the blessing, essentially the to carry on the name. And what, what Jacob does is, as, as his dad is blind, he puts on one of Esau's coats. He puts like fur on his hands. He kind of essentially makes himself to feel and smell like his brother. And he goes into his father's place and gets the blessing instead, pretending to be Esau. And so he robs him of that. Now, siblings, you think that might create a little bit of a sibling rivalry. 
The way that customs worked back then, that's not something that Isaac could have gone back on later. Once the blessing has been given, that's it. He couldn't come back and say, hey, um, yeah, that's not valid because you tricked me. Um, come here, Esau. It's not something you make right. It's just the way it is now. And so Jacob is the one who is now filling the role of the eldest, just as God prophesied. And it's one of those weird passages that when, we, when we're digging around in Genesis, we really struggle with because it seems like the one who's the deceiver is getting the better of the deal, and he is. And we ask ourselves, well, God, how could you let that happen? That's not fair. And God's response was, well, Jacob is part of my plan, and it's not for you to worry about. This is a hard truth that has nothing to do with today, but something to, to think about and learn. Sometimes God does things for his own sake and his own glory and his own planning that make no sense in our lives. And to be faithful and obedient is to trust that God knows better than we do, even when it's not right, even when it's not good, even when it's not fair by our way of thinking. Esau should have had, but Jacob instead had. And so Jacob carries on, they grow up, and what happens is both of these men, these brothers, end up really starting tribes. Jacob, later in life, will wrestle with the Lord. There's a, passage, a famous passage where you can see him wrestling. Uh, and eventually Jesus just you know, breaks, breaks him and, and wins. And the response is that he kind of falls to his knees, he worships, and, and Jacob, by, by God, is renamed. He gets a new name. He says, Jacob, you from now on shall be called Israel. That's where we get Israel, the nation of Israel, the God's people throughout the rest of the Old Testament. That's how it all starts. Because Jacob will go on to have 12 children, one of which is Joseph, who goes to Egypt, sold into slavery, which is how the rest of the brothers end up in Egypt, which is how God's people, all 12 tribes of them, all 12 brothers, end up in Egypt. And from there, Moses calls them out. You can see how the Israelite history establishes itself. But those 12 brothers, those 12 sons, of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, are what becomes the nation of Israel. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you hear of, like, the tribe of Benjamin, right, or the tribe of Joseph, those are tribes that when they went into the land, the promised land, settled in various places and together made up God's people, Israel. Meanwhile, Esau goes off on his own in anger, in resentment, in shame, looking for some way to be vindictive, and starts his own tribe. And that is the tribe of Edom. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. They are the reject pile, so to speak. And since the moment both of those brothers went their separate ways and started their own kingdoms and tribes and, and nations, those two nations feuded throughout the entire history of the Old Testament until we get to Obadiah. Picture that. Esau, the birthright was yours, and you are watching the nation of Israel flourish. They enter the promised land, right? And God actually gives the Edomites the area where they're supposed to live. It's kind of a consolation prize. Like here, you get to be here, and I'm going to tell the Israelites that they don't get to mess with you, but you're just kind of kind of exist and just, just go be and don't, don't bother anybody, right? But they're watching as God is moving throughout history in the lives of the Israelite people. God has them. He continuously allows them to be victorious in battle and to establish themselves in the kingdom of God as his people. He's watching over them. He's blessing them. They grow. They develop the kingdoms through the cycle of the, the judges and then the kings. And then when the kingdom splits, the Edomites are probably pretty happy about that because when you have someone who has caused you pain, 
and they go through misfortune, there's a part of you that kind of likes it. So picture this kingdom just kind of in the fringes, in the hill country, angry at what's happening on the other side of the sea. Anytime something good happens to the Israelites, they're over there groaning. Anytime something bad happens, oh yes, finally they're going to get what's coming to them. If you've seen the first Black Panther movie, there's one of the tribes that lives up in the mountains that hates everybody else, that's kind of semi-exiled, right? It, it, feels, it feels a lot like that. Every once in a while they come down and cause trouble and they fight with each other and then they go retreat back into their caves. But that's where we are when we get to Obadiah. And what Obadiah is addressing is what happened when Israel gets destroyed by Babylon. So Babylon comes in and completely decimates Israel and God's people, destroys the Jerusalem temple, and the Edomites are watching. And to them, it's the ultimate day of victory. They are rejoicing. They are loving every ounce of turmoil that, God, turmoil that God's people are being put through. Imagine your most hated enemy finally suffering at the hands of another empire. They're being slaughtered and killed, and their buildings are destroyed. You're just from the hill going, yeah. And the Edomites took it one step further. Not only did they rejoice, but they said, you know what? They're pretty weak. Let's go kick them while they're down. And so they came down from the hill country. And they went and they pillaged what was left of the Israelite people. They ransacked and pillaged and destroyed and killed. And they essentially were like the second wave that kicked Israel after Babylon had come through and they were already down as an ultimate act of revenge. Edom just relishes in the destruction of their brother kingdom. They couldn't be happier. And they stomp on the misery of God's people. And so that's where Obadiah picks up after that happened. And he pronounces the Lord's judgments upon Edom for what they have thought and done, for the way that they have acted all these years, and especially right now, in the ultimate stomping down. Right? First we see God gives the reason for why he's judging them specifically, in case we didn't already know, in verse 10 of Obadiah, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, a.k.a. the Israelites. Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off. Forever. He gives them the reason in verse 10, and then he pronounces a whole series of judgments. Right? They shall be cut off forever, verse 10. They shall be small and utterly despised, verse 2. Every man will be cut off by slaughter, verse 9. They shall be as though they had never been, verse 16. Jacob's house shall be a fire, Esau's house a mere stubble, verse 18. They shall be burned and consumed. There will be no survivor of the house of Esau, verse 18. Meanwhile, the Lord promises a certain sense of restoration to Israel. Right? Even, and this is easy to miss, but a restoration beyond what was before. Don't miss this. There's this small promise in verse 17 that is big. But in Mount Zion, Israel, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. What does that mean? What does it mean? You shall possess your own possessions. Well, when God brought his people into the land originally, they were supposed to take full possession of the land. Right? But they didn't. There are, there are parts of the land that they never had in all of their history. 
There were certain tribes and, and nations they never drove out fully. They intermixed with and they didn't take care of full business the way that God called them to. And because of that lack of obedience, there was part of the promised land for God's people that they never actually took ownership of. And what God is saying here is, for you, Israel, when I return you, you shall actually possess all your own possessions. There will come a time when you really will own the whole of the land. All of it shall be yours. And so while he absolutely dumps on the kingdom of Edom, there's also a small a promise in there that the people of God, though Babylon came in and Edom piled on, they will be restored one day. And this actually came to pass. The Edomites don't exist. You don't know any descendant of the Edomites. And if anybody ever says, well, you know, I am, I'm a descendant of the Edomites. No, they're not. Because no one like that exists in the world today. They have ceased to be. There's no great, 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 great grandpa that can say, you know, my great, great grandpa was an Edomite. No. I don't care how far back you go. They as a people were wiped off the face of the earth by a whole bunch of kingdoms around them. And why is the judgment so harsh? Why, why is God so harshly after them? And, and really more importantly than that, what do we take from this? Because we generally, I hope no one here has, has gone to an enemy when they're down and just completely and utterly like kicked them in the face. Like, oh, you lost your job after you got me fired? Oh, that really stinks. Come here. Like, hopefully no one here has done that. If you have, come talk to me. You might need some counseling. Right, so what do we what do we take from a passage like this that's kind of a little bit out of our context? And the answer, I think, if we want to know, uh, lies in parts by looking at Proverbs 24. If you have a Bible, go there. Proverbs 24, verses 17 through 20, give us kind of a a beginning point from where to take this passage and apply it to our own lives. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him, implying toward you. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. But verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Like I said before, every one of us has enemies. And every one of us kind of wishes them some misfortune, right? Nothing terrible, but just a little bit, right? The person who has been in your life that doesn't try but always seems to get the promotion or the thing that you worked so hard for, right? you kind of hope they get demoted someday. That would be nice. Or you would get a job that you're both going for and they didn't or something. You know, you don't want people to get hit by a bus, but a little bit of humbling wouldn't be so bad. We all, to some way, do that with the people we know that have wronged us and hurt us. Many of us don't do it consciously, but we kind of love it inside when the people that cause us misery fall down hard. Right. Here's the problem. God's kingdom has absolutely zero tolerance for that way of thinking. Zero. Well, well, surely God, who's an understanding God, 
right? I, he would at least understand how, where I'm coming from, that I might wish ill towards somebody or at least be a little bit happy when they fall down off their mighty high horse. And the answer is no, God has zero patience for that kind of thinking. He doesn't. Not only does he have no patience for it, but he's actually angered by it. And that's the whole point of Obadiah. The people of Edom reveled in the misery of the people of Israel. And God's response was, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. All the things you did to them, they're going to happen to you and they're going to happen tenfold. Don't think for a second that you get to think or live this way and be in any way considered to be part of God's people. And here's the reason why he has no tolerance, because the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is built on the foundation of mercy. The gospel does not allow for wishing ill upon anyone, even our enemies. And scripture is vastly clear that we are to love our enemies. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and his vengeance towards people that have wronged you can look remarkably merciful. There are people that have done you wrong and they've committed grave sin against you, and if they are in Christ, vengeance to them is grace and mercy. Is the Lord saying, yeah, you deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth for what you did to so-and-so, but instead, welcome to my kingdom. That's the response. And man, that is hard, but that is how God works. God's heart, the foundation of his heart, is to be merciful. And if we are to wear God's heart, then we ought to be a people that bear God's mercy. The foundation of the gospel is that God loves you when you are impossible to love. He cares for you when you deserve no care. And in many ways, you have made decisions and make decisions every day that make you God's enemy. But God doesn't rejoice in your demise. Instead, he fights for your restoration and to give you life. And so when you act like an enemy, he acts like your Abba Father. And then he sends his son to demonstrate that kind of loving mercy on earthly terms that we might actually see and comprehend through Jesus' ministry what that kind of love of enemy actually looks like. Jesus loved his enemies. It doesn't mean he never rebuked them, but he loved his enemies. And then he invites us to come and be and do likewise. I don't know about you, but for me, that is really hard. I've been wronged by some people over the years, and to pray for and to seek for their joy and well-being feels nearly impossible. And maybe that's you too. Maybe you have an enemy and you just want to say, Vince, I, I don't know what, you know, what, I don't know how I could possibly pray for them. You, you, you're up here pontificating, but you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know the, the vast nature of how I've been wronged by them. To ask me to pray for them is almost evil, is almost Um, unbearable. And the answer is, well, of course it's unbearable because you can't love your enemy on your own terms. You can't decide to just let bygones be bygones and decide I'm going to love my enemy because God says he'll smite me if I don't. So I guess I have to. The only way that you can love your enemy 
is by using the power that Christ puts within you, the heart change that he employs within us when we come to know him as our Lord and our Savior, and the Holy Spirit embodies and empowers us and offers us the power to do things that we could never on human terms do on our own, including forgiving those who have wronged us in unbearable, unfathomable ways. Through the power of Christ, forgiveness can be ours. God can transform your heart to be like his, to seek mercy and grace and reconciliation, even in the hardest of circumstances, the impossible circumstances. He can give you that radical ability for forgiveness that you could never give yourself. And you can hope for the day where all sin is laid to rest by God and all dwell in peace. Here's the question. The people that are our enemies, do we want them in hell when we die? Or do we want them to be reconciled just like us? Do you want to someday stand across from the person who made your life more miserable than anybody in the gates of heaven and look at each other and instead of anger and animosity, have an anger and animosity towards sin that caused this whole mess to begin with and to say, thank God we don't have to deal with any of that anymore. Come here. Let's reconcile and move forward. One of the beauties of the gospel is that someday we will dwell in paradise with our worst enemies, with those who have done the worst of the worst to us, but have come to know the Lord and the forgiveness of God and the newness that comes as he makes us a new creation. And we all get to dwell in heaven together and pain no more and sin no more and strife no more. And I don't know about you, by God's grace only do I hope that some of my worst enemies are there. What a great day of reconciliation and what a testament to God's goodness that would be. By the way, if you want to know how sinful it is, the idea of rejoicing in the demise of someone and kicking them when they're down, that's the way Satan operates. That's the description of who he is as a, as a person. Right? The enemy brings us down to our lowest points and then just was the final jab. He comes to us in the midst of our disease and pain and illness and strife when people have most wronged us and he comes and he pokes and he prods. Right? Satan never once has said, let them heal. No. Satan will take advantage of every possible demise that you encounter to make things worse. That's what the enemy does. That's not what God does. The book of Obadiah is a warning to the Edomites, to the Israelites, to us today. If you are in Christ, if the gospel has shaped you and transformed you, you do not have the luxury, the permission, or the blessing of the Lord in any way to wish anything but rejuvenation and restoration for those who have wronged you, for the people that you call to me. I don't care how much you hate them. I don't care how much you want to see them fall. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Part of being a Christian is that we give up our desire for earthly justice and we instead allow justice to be something God takes care of. And he will. He will. Put it in his hands and the Lord will take care of making sure justice is served one way or another. And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest with myself, as hard as it is, my prayer is that when it comes to my enemies, God's justice goes the same way it went for me. A wretched sinner who deserves to be killed, but instead I get to be with God forever. I hope they're there. Let's close by, by, by in prayer, but not just prayer, but maybe we, we pray 
uh, together and in silence a little bit for those who we would consider our enemies. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the word of Obadiah that is really hard. We all have people, as we all raised or didn't raise our hands, that we would love to have some, some negative befall. God, we pray that you would wipe those thoughts from our minds, that you would restore us and heal us and bring us closer in line with your heart. God, every one of us in the next minute or so has in mind a, a specific person or persons. So, Lord, in a, in a, in a moment of, of just silent prayer, we want to lift them up to you. We want to pray that you would bring them to restoration to you, that they would come to know you if they don't already, that they would flourish as a person of God, that they would excel in life in the ways that you call them to, that we might reconcile with them down the road. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the next. We pray for them now. of your grace and truth and let it let it just inhabit us so that we might be a people more willing to love our enemies even though that is impossible apart from your grace we pray for the ways that we have made ourselves your enemy and we ask for forgiveness and restoration and mercy at your feet Be with us as we go from this place. Let us be ambassadors of your kingdom and agents of reconciliation into every sphere and place that we go, whether that be our businesses, our homes, our families, our schools, our neighborhoods, our restaurants, our grocery stores, our, our cabs, our, our cars, everywhere. Lord, let reconciliation reign because your people have been empowered and equipped by your spirit to bring it, to usher it into this world. We love you and praise you. All as people said.